Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between The Economist and author Will Page, that's myself, and the independent analyst Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Today, we are in conversation with our second special guest, the source of truth in the wild west of podcasting, Mr. James Cridland. And we're going to be discussing hyper-competition in the world of podcasts, that point where quantity goes up and quality goes down. More in a moment. We're back with Bubble Trouble. Welcome along, Richard Kramer. Hey, Will. So we're back into hyper-competition. We think we've got something here, some real-time thinking, some real-time podcasting about a problem that we've yet to solve. That problem being, is there too much choice? And to reiterate the mantra of some choice is better than none, but it does not necessarily follow that more choice is better than some. And last week, we discussed with Paul Sanders, the person who coined the term hyper-competition, whether it applies to music. Do we actually need 75,000 new songs being onboarded onto streaming platforms every day? Is there a cost to having too much choice? Are there limitations? This week we flick a bit to podcasts and we've got the best person in the world to speak with, James Cridland, the author of the Pod News newsletter and the fantastic Podland podcast. (laughs) And James, welcome to Bubble Trouble and thank you so much for giving us your time. Oh, it's a great pleasure. It's excellent to be here. So to introduce James Cridland to the stage, I have to stress, uh, I subscribe to many podcasts. I'm now listening to one, which is Podland, his weekly summary of what's going on in the wild west of podcasting. And I subscribe to many newsletters and I'm reading only just one, which is Pod News, his newsletter. So let me ask James to firstly introduced the work that he does, which is so crucial in helping this business, which is literally designing a plane whilst it's in flight, but not just introduce the work that's available for free to consume that he's doing, this incredible work that he's producing, but also, James, maybe just start off by explaining to me what's in a word, the syntax of podcasts. As far as I can work out, it's a merge of two things, an iPod, which you can only buy in a cash converter on Kentish Town High Street, and a broadcast, which is the opposite of what podcasts are. They're narrowcasts. They're not one-to-many. They're many one-to-ones. So firstly, the work that you produce, and secondly, the definition of a podcast. Well, uh, firstly, yes, I, I write a bunch of different things around podcasting, and I've been in the audio space for the last 30 years. And being in the audio space for the last 30 years, in February 2004, that is when another British person came up with the word podcast, uh, a man called Ben Hammersley, who was a journalist at The Guardian at the time. And it's exactly that. It's a portmanteau between iPod 
and broadcast. And you're absolutely right that that is two things that podcasting isn't. If you talk to old gold podcasters, they will talk to you about audio files and MP3s and without DRMs and distributed via an RSS feed and lots of technical (laughs) mumbo jumbo, which is completely pointless. From my point of view, a podcast is on-demand audio. It's like a radio show, but it's on-demand. Now, I want to get to you by revealing a stat that you introduced me to, which is at the current ramp rate, we're looking at two new podcasts being launched every minute. Now, this may not be true since Anchor has changed its tone a little bit, but for a while, two new podcasts, not episodes, two new shows were being launched every minute. So in the, what, four minutes I've been talking here, that would have been eight new podcasts on boarding a platform. Do we need that much choice? Is there a problem with that much choice? And I want to get into a a sort of long tail introduction to this discussion here by just citing a 2008 study I did on the download market on iTunes. There was 13 million tracks on the digital shelf in 2008. And I worked out that 10 million didn't have a single click. So the long tail was very long, but it was also very dormant. A lot of dormant tracks sat on the shelf. Can you just open this conversation up by talking about the long tail of podcasts when we're looking at two new shows every minute getting produced? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of new podcasts being made all the time. There are 4.2 million podcasts out there. And one of the things that is, I think, a little bit concerning is if you have a look at the best research that we have, which is Edison Research's Infinite Dial. And that says that the average amount of podcasts that people listen to is eight. So that's eight different shows a week. But when you start diving into this, it's skewed by the super listeners, people who are listening to loads and loads and loads of them. Actually, a third of people listen to three podcasts or under. So three podcasts or under, but 4.2 million podcasts out there. That's uh, quite a difference in terms of numbers, I think. And we're looking at a land of niches, I guess. I mean, there's, when we talk about hit podcasts, how big are those hit podcasts hitting? What's the popularity of the head? Well, I, I think when you look at the amount of downloads that you need to make a hit, then you are looking at actually a very small amount of podcasts. You're looking at the top 1%, the top 2%. Half of all of the podcasts out there get less than 28 downloads per episode in their first week. So as long as you're doing more than 28 downloads... Uh, for uh, this particular show, then you are doing better than half of the podcasts out there. But having said that, you need to launch an awful lot of great content in order to find some of those hits, because some of those hits will naturally bubble to the top and naturally give people the hits that they're looking for. So I think it's not necessarily a concern that there are so many podcasts out there. It's probably just making sure that the search algorithms, that the recommendation algorithms actually make sure that the recommendation algorithms just make the hit podcasts the most successful on those platforms. I'd like to step in here and and challenge one of the things that you said, which is that these podcasts will naturally and you use the word bubble, Mm. but sort of rise to the top or come to the surface. And what we've seen in other media certainly is that you've got to put a lot of effort into marketing. And certainly in the record 
industry and the music industry, uh, I think Will will nod along to this, it's all about the marketing that's put behind particular artists. And with so many podcasts out there, how does one know what should get marketed? How do you pick the wheat from the chaff? Well, I think that's one of the problems that Spotify is running into, because Spotify is launching a bunch of new individual podcasts every single week, every single month. And of course, it's actually very difficult to promote more than one or two of these shows uh, if you're going to promote them, you know, a lot. If you're going to really shout about them, how can you possibly shout about 30 or 40 individual shows? And I think that's one of the hard jobs that any large publisher has, whether it's Spotify, whether it's Luminary, of course, that we've uh, seen trying to do this sort of thing in the past. You know, if you're launching 20 or 30 different shows in a month, how do you promote all of those at the same time? And that is, I think, quite hard to end up doing. If I look at um, streaming TV, for example, Amazon, in the UK at least, is known for the Grand Tour. It's the place where the stars of Top Gear went to do their replacement show. HBO is known as the place where you watch Game of Thrones in the US, or Foxtel has Game of Thrones here in Australia, where I'm talking to you from. And really, those are the tent pegs, and there are very, very few of those that are actually holding up the whole edifice, holding up the whole tent of Amazon Prime or HBO. Joe Rogan is perhaps doing that for Spotify a little bit, but there are very few other really large exclusive shows that Spotify has that are actually delivering an awful lot of uh, new customer acquisition. We'll come to Joe Rogan in the second half of this podcast, but you are reminding me of something we discussed last week, which is when you have an increasingly long, skinny tail of content, when you have hyper-competition, there's more noise in the market, therefore you need more relative investment to stand above that noise, and that favours the few, not the many. And it's almost like the inequality widens with the more democratisation of access a market has. I think really one of the things around podcasting that we're seeing a lot of now is Hollywood signing up big stars to appear in a podcast because that is at least a hook to get you in. I, I think what they've not necessarily understood is that a Hollywood personality is a personality because they get scripts written for them by amazing writers. That's where a Hollywood personality gets their personality from. So actually, if you stick a Hollywood personality in front of a microphone and say, talk about your life, then there's actually quite little life to actually talk about. But clearly, bringing in a big star for your podcast is something that should certainly, you know, in their minds, help a new podcast get established. Can I zero in on, again, something that we like to talk about in this podcast, since it's about bubbles and bubble trouble? There's a, clearly a cost to producing all of these podcasts with all of these stars, and it's got to be commercial at some point. And a lot of the folks who advocate for a giant market in podcast advertising look over to the radio world. Mm. And they say there's this huge market in radio advertising. The figure is almost surely out of date right now, but they point to $17 billion of radio advertising in the U.S. Yeah, $17 billion. That used to be bigger than the global music industry. <laughs> so that's supposed to be the natural home of advertising shifting to podcasting. But when you dig into that 
local radio advertising market, it is hyper-local. It is the local Chevy dealer, the amusement park, the rib shack in the local market, and it's sold by a local sales team. Do you think it's realistic that podcasts can tap into that huge market, or do you think it's it's going to be a, a difficult ask for them to come up with a kind of targeting that that finds the three or five or 10 or 28 listeners in that local market for the global podcast that only has a few thousand. I think you've got two questions there. You've got, is it technically possible for podcasts to do targeting? And on the other side, how can you go out and sell local advertising to local advertising clients. And I think if you were to take both of those separately, firstly, from a technology point, yes, it's absolutely possible for the ads that you hear in a podcast to be hyper-locally targeted to individual people, and not just locally targeted, but targeted to people's individual communities of common interest. You you look at radio and you assume that it's local radio, it's local communities and everything else. Actually, it's not. Radio is all about communities of common interest. The fact that we have been talking about local radio in the past is only because an FM transmitter only reaches about 60 or 70 miles, and that's about as far as it'll go. That's very different to when you look at communities. And clearly what we're seeing now is we're seeing internet radio and podcasting, which is specifically for communities that aren't just local communities, but communities of common interest, whether that's communities of the people who are interested in uh, in economists talking about bubbles to people who are interested in what uh, Joe Rogan has to say or indeed podcasts about underwater knitting or whatever that might end up being. So I think podcasts work very, very well in terms of that. I mean, it was interesting. I was listening to um, the podcast that you did recently about sacks and in it was a very impassioned ad read from you, Will, about Policy Genius. Now, Policy Genius sounds like a great sponsor and a great product. I live in Australia, and that talk about Policy Genius made me jealous that I didn't live in the US, where I can actually use this particular product. Targeting ads to individual countries and indeed individual towns and individual streets is really easy, and that's a real opportunity, I think. You've then got the other side, of course, which is, well, how do you go out and sell? And I think that's um, one of the interesting things looking at people like Sirius XM, who owns Pandora, but also Stitcher. They have pulled all of their ad sales uh, teams together so that uh, they can use the local ad sales teams that Pandora have to go out and sell podcasts as well. And I think that makes a a bunch of sense. And similarly, you know, Spotify has its own self-service model, which allows you to do that sort of thing as well. So I think there are opportunities in terms of local sales, although local sales is quite expensive, having worked in um, commercial radio in the past. But there are also opportunities, I think, certainly in terms of the technology and the targeting of communities of common interest. That gets us to the halftime whistle here. And what I'm working out in my head so far is there's a whole ton of choice in podcasts two new shows every minute over four million on the platforms already but not a whole ton of money to support that choice as well and that's going to create some bubble troubles in the future we'll be back in part two to discuss the exclusive content the anchor content the content supposed to draw you into listening to podcasts as well back in a moment
We're back for part two of Bubble Trouble with James Cridland, one of the best informed commentators on the podcast industry that we know. And James, we want to have a chat with you about this notion of exclusives, the trade-offs behind them and whether they work. Obviously, when a popular podcast goes exclusive on one or another platform, it massively reduces the potential audience, but obviously increases the value to the platform of having content that people might come specifically to hear. And could you walk us through some of the examples you've seen as to whether exclusives make sense or not, and are they the way forward in the podcast world? Yeah, sure. I think exclusives in terms of audio are very different to exclusives in terms of, you know, big budget TV shows or big uh, movies and things like that. I think that audio is far, far harder to talk up the benefit of an exclusive, particularly since you've got so many other choices out there. But one of the things that I'm certainly seeing is that there are some exclusives that work. Most of them probably don't work too well, but it's a slightly different kettle of fish in the podcasting world because pretty much all of the podcasting that you find aren't exclusive to a platform. Some of them are, but they're certainly not paid. So you don't have a paywall with the uh, the very small exception of Audible. You don't have platforms that you actually have to pay for. So you end up with uh, Joe Rogan is an exclusive. He's on Spotify, but he's not behind the Spotify paywall. Anyone can still listen to that podcast. You just have to download the app first. Uh, And the same goes for a number of different exclusives on a number of different platforms as well. There is a question as to whether or not that is a good acquisition of a consumer. Is this the only exclusive thing that that particular platform has to offer? And I kind of look at Spotify and I think Spotify in terms of music, there is nothing exclusive in terms of any of the music that you find on Spotify that you can't also get on Apple Music or on Tidal or on YouTube Music or on any of these other services. So Spotify has to sell itself on two things. Firstly, really good algorithms. And I think they're now being beaten by YouTube in terms of music algorithms. But secondly, they need to sell them on other content. And that other content might be Joe Rogan and Brené Brown and Barack Obama and maybe Prince Harry, who knows. And I think that that is probably one of the things which is keeping Spotify looking a bit different to the competitors because they've actually got this content in there. I think Prince Harry's provided around 36 minutes of content so far, which means he's got the highest per stream in music history. (laughs) He's done pretty well out of it, I think. But on the other hand, Prince Harry's stuff is exclusive either in an exclusive time window or exclusive full stop on the Spotify platform. But anybody can still have a listen. They just need to download the free Spotify app and uh, hear some of the ads around it. So I think from what you're saying and from our discussion in the first half, there's just too much substitutability in the total volume of podcast content out there to shift someone into a platform or out of a platform based on one exclusive show. I think there needs to be a really good exclusive show. Joe Rogan is a really good example of a show where fans will follow him around and they may not be entirely happy about being bullied to you know download this particular app but they will follow him around i'm not sure that there are 20 30 40 of the of those individual shows in that same way 
Just on Joe Rogan, James, I'd be interested to hear your view on the fact it's now a visual experience on Spotify. You watch it on your screen as well as listening through your headphones. And we talk about podcasts as being audio content. How important for marquee content like Joe Rogan is the visual experience as well, seeing the guests in the studio? I mean, Joe Rogan's always been a visual experience in that you've been able to experience that on YouTube. And one of the things that Spotify did in their uh, deal was to stop Joe Rogan from putting the entire show onto YouTube. And by the way, YouTube is the number one podcast platform in many different countries. It just comes back to what is a podcast anyway, as we were talking about right at the beginning. So I think the interest in terms of Joe Rogan for being a video podcast is actually that it makes it shareable. It makes it more of an experience. You're not probably going to sit there for three hours and look at the two locked off cameras and think that that's a great TV experience. It's not. It's a great audio first experience. But there are those shareable things that happen in every one of those podcasts where you can actually share something that isn't just a wiggly uh, waveform on a screen. Uh, You can actually share the video of that particular bit. And I think it's great, therefore, for marketing and that sort of thing, but probably not how most people are consuming it. So it'd be interesting to find out how many people have watched a clip of Elon Musk smoking a spliff with Joe Rogan versus how many people listened to the three-hour interview in its entirety. Oh, I I would completely agree with that. And I think there are whole podcasts to be made of how long a podcast should be and uh, whether three hours is too long. There's a very good uh, radio consultant called Valerie Geller who has a catchphrase of don't be boring. And maybe there's something to be learnt uh, from that. But I'm sure that a lot of people were both watching the show on YouTube, but having it on in the, the background, but also using YouTube comments to feel as if they were part of that community of common interest that I was talking about earlier. And those comments don't exist on Spotify. So Spotify has this problem where they've actually taken a community of people that really enjoyed that Joe Rogan show And they've dumped them somewhere where they can't actually continue to function as a community anymore. And that's a bit of a concern. So let's wrap up. We want to get to smoke signals soon, but I just want to frame one last question on this hyper-competition in podcasts. In in part one, we established there's a ton of choice, but there's not a ton of money. And in part two, we're seeing how platforms are resorting to exclusives as a strategy towards driving their podcast business forward. When I was taught exclusives, the textbook example is called the Howard Stern Effect, who left FM radio, which had massive reach, went to SiriusXM, which had less reach, but from quantity to quality had a core audience, which was worth more. So he reduced his reach and increased his value. Do you see Howard Stern examples happening in podcasts? Or to your earlier point, the fact they're available for free, does it kind of undermine the Howard Stern strategy of an exclusive in itself? Yeah, I think there's a big difference there in between exclusives that help consumers sign up to a service. There are lots of people who have signed up to Amazon Prime Video in the UK because they wanted to watch the Grand Tour. And I think there's a big difference there to making a podcast which is available free, but you have to download a specific app to end up getting that. Now, there's a particular example in the UK of the BBC Sounds app where they are actually doing exactly that. They have a free app. 
they're putting a bunch of content that license fee payers like you are paying for, but the only place that you can have a listen to them is on the BBC Sounds app. And that seems to be a successful strategy for the BBC, but then they do have 23,000 people working for them, and they do have some pretty good content on there as well. And I think if if we've learned anything over the last 15 years, it's that people coming into the podcasting industry really underestimate what hard work it is to make great audio. Right, and this is why I'm just like banging my head against the table here, because what is a podcast? Well, there are arguments going on around, should we call radio, radio anymore? <laughs> and I'm a big fan of calling things by what the audience calls it. You know when you're listening to the radio, and you know when you're listening to a podcast. A podcast is a piece of on-demand audio, which is like a radio show, but on-demand. That's all a podcast is. And I'm a real fan of listening to what the audience is calling something and not arguing with them and just getting on with the <laughs> with the job. Well, we're getting to the end of this week's episode. Let's get smoking on some signals, Richard. James, what we do on this show is look for smoke signals or warnings of bubble trouble. Things that make you go, uh-oh, that's not going to end well. Can you give us a few of those with respect to this burgeoning area of, I'm not even sure I can call it podcasts anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can call it podcasts. I think I've spotted a, a number of uh, things which make me worried. I mean, quite apart from the amount of money, Spotify has paid more in terms of acquiring podcast companies than the entire podcast industry is worth, uh, which is really weird to me, but I'm sure it makes sense for somebody. But I think there are a lot of VCs wading into this space and they don't understand the technology behind it or the culture behind it. Uh, and you can have a look at, for example, Mark Cuban's Fireside Chat. He is making something which is a closed ecosystem, which doesn't have the same culture, the same technology as podcasting. And he's standing there and saying, this is podcasting 2.0. No, it's not. It's a different thing. It's a different thing that probably won't be very successful because you don't really understand what you're coming into. So I think that's one side. It's VCs and money who don't understand the technology and don't understand the culture. The other side is people coming in, not understanding how to make great audio, and instead assuming that they can just buy a Hollywood name or a musician or something. And then you have people who end up making, you know, really dull podcasts that don't really move the needle for anyone, but it's a big name. And so therefore, they've commanded a big fee. Mm. And I think that's a mm. bit of a worry uh, as we move forward. So uh, some of the ones that you I think you suggested, anyone who says that they're going to be the Netflix of podcasting? Yes, if you see, it's two things in a, in a press release, and I get an awful lot of uh, press releases every day for the podnews.net newsletter that I write. One of them is, you know, our new platform is the Netflix for podcasting. What you're basically saying is that you have built something which is completely different and you do not understand what makes podcasting podcasting. And the other thing uh, that really worries me when I see it in a press release is 
anyone who promises you that this particular podcast with a minor celebrity is going to be, you know, uh, no holds barred, uh, is going to be the unexpurgated, uncensored version of what this celebrity ends up saying. And if you have to rely on the fact that there are no broadcast laws in the world of podcasting to promote your content, then I worry about what that content is actually going to be. Absolutely. And just to wrap up and back to your first point there about Netflix, when someone's prepared to spend $17 billion a year, which is what Netflix is planning to spend this year on on video production content and licensing content, and uh, next time someone sends you that press release, you should ask, how large is your funding behind your business? And how do you plan to uh, spray and pray it around the industry? Because you're going to be spending a heck of a lot of money to get that position. And a couple other points points that I've always come up with is just how much of podcast content is ephemeral or time-based. It's commenting on on yesterday's news, which in a week's time is not going to be that interesting, and or coming from areas like where our producer Eric used to work from National Public Radio, which simply can't go exclusive on one or another platform. It has to, by public mandate, be available to everyone. As same with the BBC Sounds app. It's available to everyone for free, and I don't think they ask you if you're a licensed payer when you download the app. That's right, Richard. If I can just jump in on that point, Richard, that's, that's the other P word in this discussion. It's not just a podcast, what is a podcast, but the perishability. Mm. When you buy a music catalog, people are paying 18, 20 times multiples the annual income to acquire that catalog for its future value. When you buy podcast companies, surely that content they produce is perishable. And if it is, what do you actually buy? But I would argue that the content, some of it is perishable, but some of it isn't. And sure. when you have a look at the serial podcast for, you know, if you're ever going to talk about podcasting, you might as well talk about serial. People are still downloading that in tens of thousands of downloads every single month. And that is a six, seven year old show because it's a great show, because it isn't perishable, because it is there all the time. And there are countless examples as well. You know, whether you're having a look at the West Cork podcast, whether you're having a look at archive shows from In Our Time, from the BBC, uh, or from other things, there are countless archive stuff that works in a very evergreen way. And there are an awful lot of stuff which is all kind of throwaway too. But then what is the New York Times if it's not a throwaway uh, medium with some stuff that you will never come back to, but some stuff that you might do in the future? Sure. I guess it raises the question of catalog value. And it's much harder to define in this audio space than it is in the traditional media space where you'd have to assume the back catalog of MGM or Disney or Fox Studios has a certain demonstrable value, whereas we haven't yet learned how to value the back catalog of podcasts. Again, I would, I, I would argue against that. I think one of the reasons why Wondery was purchased by Amazon wasn't that it had a great set of podcasts. Their podcasts are fine. But it wasn't just because of that. It was because they've bought Wondery because of the IP that they own in those formats. And what they've been able to do, for example, with the Business Wars podcast, 
past in America that would have been about Pepsi versus Coca-Cola. They've sold the format and the idea to a Japanese broadcaster who did Sega versus Nintendo. They've sold it to a podcaster in the UAE who's produced an Arabic version of that uh, show as well. So I think that there are opportunities once you move past the is a podcast just Joe Rogan, you know, having a spliff with Elon Musk and is there more to the medium than that? I think there is. And I think Mm. that's where the real value is. Indeed. Yeah. In music, we like to say the brand is bigger than the band. And perhaps that's what you're getting Mm. at there. So, James, let me talk to you about one of my sticking points or great bugbears about the notion of podcast advertising, which is if I'm a subscriber to a premium service, I'm expecting to get no ads. And yet I would be the most attractive audience to advertise to. So how does it work with the people who pay to recuse themselves from all that bothersome advertising and the notion of paying for exclusives that you can drop ads into for the audience that you really oughtn't be bothering with those ads. Well, I mean, when I pay for uh, cable TV or for satellite TV, I still get ads in there. I'm sure that there are many other examples. When I pay for the New York Times, I still get ads in there as well. Sure. It is one of the things that I've always been a little bit concerned about. If you are a company who is selling advertising... Uh, for you to basically then turn around and say, ah, but you can also pay to get rid of the ads. Because to me, that means that you end up being a company that is selling low quality audiences, audiences that aren't interested in paying for those particular uh, shows, and so therefore will uh, happily hear the ads. And those audiences, if you're trying to sell a BMW, well, the BMW driver is probably going to be paying to get rid of the ads in the first place. So how on earth do you actually get him to buy a BMW or an Audi? That's going to be very, very hard. So I'm always slightly nervous about companies that are both selling advertising, but also selling the opportunity to get rid of advertising too. Mm. But James, let me come on this. People are placing huge bets on podcasting. We can see that hundreds of millions of pounds on podcasting companies with perishable content. I get that. We still don't know whether the ad money is going to migrate over to podcasts. And now we're seeing hit content go direct, which is presumably without adverts. What signal does that send to the advertising market, which might be pondering whether it should allocate 5% of its budget to podcasts or 25% of its budget to podcasts, if it starts to see a long tail distribution where the head says, we don't want ads, and the tail says, nobody's listening to us? Aren't we going into a bit of a cul-de-sac here? Well, but I also think that we are over-exaggerating Spotify's place, paid uh, podcasting's place in the industry. I think when you have a look at podcasting in total, Spotify is between 15 and 20% of all of the plays. And Spotify seems to excel in younger audiences and also more occasional audiences as well in terms of podcasting. And the only other way of getting rid of the ads is to go for somebody like, you know, Apple Podcasts paid services. And those again are fine. But I think actually what we're beginning to see there isn't getting rid of the adverts. It's a different funding model to make content that actually is quite difficult to make. You can look at the obvious example, which is true crime. Not that many brands want to advertise around conversations 
around, you know, people's head being cut off with a carving knife and all that kind of stuff. Because funnily enough, people are a little bit concerned about their brand reputation and their brand safety. So it could well be that that sort of content works far, far better if you can ask your audience directly for some cash instead. Hang on, I thought that was an attribute for for content in Australia. (laughs) No, that's just that's just the animals who live here. Yeah. All right. With that, I think we need to bring this exhaustive discussion about podcasting and its many varietal forms to a close and thank our guest, James Cridland, uh, who knows as much or more about the space than anyone for joining us and, and enlightening us on this episode of Bubble Trouble. It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nozum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. We'll be with you next time. Bubble Trouble.